When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, and because the situation this week is so serious, I have banded together with my greatest allies and enemies. Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Brian Singer's 2003 film X2, which has mutant heroes and villains joining forces against a genocidal technological plot that would murder all mutants. In this episode, we're looking at Avengers Infinity War, in which heroes joined forces against a genocidal, essentially magical plot that would murder literally half the inhabitants of the universe. It's hard to remember in 2018 that there was a time before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, before the era in which Disney-produced, Marvel Studios-planned movies were laid out in an ambitious schedule unfolding years into the future. It's also hard to remember that less than 20 years ago, Hollywood really hadn't meaningfully cracked the superhero movie code, and that superhero comics on screen reliably produced some pretty awful movies. But starting with 2008's Iron Man, Marvel's team launched a winning formula, equal parts smart Alec banter and high stakes, with a lot of thrilling on-screen action and protagonists with strong individual goals and personalities. The individuality became increasingly important as these movies piled up and as they started to cross over. If Tony Stark and Bruce Banner and Thor and Black Widow all essentially looked alike on screen, as so many previous comic book heroes and villains before them had, it wouldn't have been remotely meaningful when they all met up and started to clash with each other. The fan response to Avengers Infinity War and the immense, intimidating piles of money even the worst-received MCU movies have made over the past decade certainly suggests that viewers have identified their favorite characters, have taken a rooting interest in their fights and their behavior, and authentically care what happens when they meet each other. But there certainly is a question of how long Marvel can maintain this run. The studio has been consciously developing towards this specific moment for a long time now, and in the process, they've been mirroring some of the biggest strengths and worst problems that Marvel Comics has also faced over the years. On the upside, memorable characters with problems that make them seem human. Fans who love them and identify not just with the characters, but with the actors playing them. A form of brand loyalty and devotion that's completely redefined the cinematic landscape, skewing it toward long-term franchise plans and big crossover events. On the downside, increasingly Baroque and complicated storylines, individual films that make no sense unless you've seen everything in the series, and a formula that can seem pretty repetitive once you see the strings. So what to make of Avengers Infinity War, the film that pulls all its predecessors together and then seems to wrap up half the Marvel Cinematic Universe's storylines in one big bang? We will straight up warn you that there are spoilers for Infinity War ahead as we try to make sense of it all. Excelsior. In time, you will know what it's like to lose. Dread it, run from it. The end is near. We got one advantage. We have what Thanos wants. So that's what we use. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way, it might be really good. Wow. Today, we don't fight for one life. We fight for all of them. Group, put that thing away. Now, I don't want to tell you again. Group. And group. Whoa, language. Yes! 
Scott Tobias, what mm-hmm. do you think of Infinity War? I really didn't like this film at all. Am I going to break from the whole group? I, I don't know Genevieve's opinion yet, but uh, <laughs> it was a clarifying experience for me in the sense that I remembered as I was watching it that what I like about the Marvel films, generally speaking, are the beats between the action sequences when you have time to kind of get to know these characters and you know there's a lot of loose talk and uh, that sort of business. The action itself, much of the time, fallen short for me. So having a 150-minute film that's all one gigantic action sequence with no other beats to that's it. That's unfair. There are several gigantic action sequences <laughs> smushed together. <Okay. laughs> Several. That's true. And they they, they sometimes take upwards of sixty seconds for characters to interact with each other in meaningful ways. That's true. I mean, where is the first act? Does there have to be a first act? I mean, what this movie is misbehaving for me on that in that respect. The first act is two thousand and eight's Iron Man. That's well, exactly (laughs) right. I mean, that's not what a movie does. You can't just you can't just just immediately plunge us into action for two and a half hours. I just I I was absolutely rung out. I mean, I, so what I, you're saying is just follow the cookie cutter, save the cat, Sid feel <laughs> formula, and then everything would be a lot better, right? I think it's a radical <laughs> break. <laughs> I can't oh, that's right. You try to say that you try to say that this is uh, an avant-garde no. film. <laughs> <online>. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I got it. Just structurally uh, no. speaking. Structurally. Yeah. It's, it is. It, you know what? It pushes it. I mean, it, to me, it's like, it felt like watching a Michael Bay film, except without the pretty images. So it was kind of like that. Scott <laughs> Tobias. for me. Scott I mean, Wilstrom Tobias, who are you? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed some of the characters that were funny that kind of got together. I, I don't know. This one, it killed me. I, I was. It's maybe the worst of the Marvel films for me. It's certainly towards the very, very bottom. It was just the opposite of what I have liked about these films of the past. Oof. Yeah, yep. but but you you all enjoyed it. Somebody though. who is not Scott. No, I, I've done it. I don't really disagree with anything you're saying, though, Scott. I mean, mm-hmm. it is. I've been thinking about why that is since I saw your tweets and, and like you know and, and my own enjoyment of the film is curious to me because it is a lot of what you're describing. Mm-hmm. But I think at this point, maybe it's that I, I, I do read comics, you know, and I'm kind of used to like reading a stack of comics that give you a little sliver of a story mm-hmm. that's that everyone looks different from the other. It's kind of all tied together. But I think in some way, I think the Marvel movies have trained viewers to think like comics readers where, you know, there's always these big crossover events and they're never great, but they're always <laughs> kind of fascinating to see all these characters interact in like one big story that you're really reading more to find out what happens than any other reason and how it's going to change the universe forever. And I think that's kind of what we're all doing with the Avengers films. I think we know they're not going to be at, the ceiling is much lower than for the individual character films. Like Black Panther was great. I really loved Spider-Man Homecoming. And this was really entertaining, I thought. But it's really entertaining in part because I'm invested in this whole project and these characters. And there's a shorthand developed. And it's like, it's kind of fun to see Doctor Strange mixing it up with uh, Spider-Man. That itself is, is its own pleasure. I, and Tasha, you, you've tipped your hand already. You like this movie. I ate up this movie like a big bowl of gelato. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the experience. And more than once, I have come on this podcast and said, yeah, this movie was doing a lot of things that in the abstract I love. And yet it just didn't work for me to the point where somebody on Facebook actually called out how little he was looking forward to. <laughs> a film he liked, getting the Tasha Robinson that treatment. This film is doing a bunch of stuff that in theory I shouldn't like. You're right. It's it's a long action scene interrupted by essentially fan payoff. Hey, here's what would happen if character Z and character X finally got together over T. Is it interrupted? It felt relentless to me. But. Oh, man. Yeah. But I, I enjoyed it so much. And every single one of those, oh, what, like, what, what, how are these two characters going to get along to each other? Uh, like, every single one of those moments I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. When I realized the film, uh, it's also another thing that it's doing that I all, all very often hate in movies is it's such a video game quest movie. You know, here are a number <laughs> of items that we've got to collect one by one. And along the way, like some people are going to die. There are going to be a bunch of, of mini boss fights and then the big boss fight and then a series of big boss fights in this case. I should not like this movie. I'm really invested in these characters mm. at this point. I find the vast majority of them very charming. I find a lot of kind of Marvel's extra textual stuff with these characters, with the actors, very charming. I just – there's an appeal to them. 
but mostly I'm just I'm invested in the same sort of way that the first Secret Wars crossover, like the first crossover you experience in comics is just this big, exciting. How is this all going to interact? How is it going to work is exciting. And then everyone after that is like, they're just trying to make you buy comics that you wouldn't normally buy. Like, I don't. Secret Wars 2. Secret Wars 2 <laughs> is a really good example of that. I don't think I'm going to come back to this movie over and over again. And I don't think that I would have the emotional attachment if they did it again more than once ever. But as it was, my experience in the theater was like sitting there like a spoonie with my, my jaw hanging <laughs> open, just like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? Genevieve? Yeah, I'm pretty positive on this movie. Sorry, sorry, Scott. No, um, but I think it's it's interesting that we keep kind of talking about like how it does function as like a big comics crossover. And like the three of us who did respond to it all have more experience yeah. with uh, superhero comics than you do. And I think maybe are primed for the structure of this film in a way that maybe yep. you are, are not uh, and have a certain purism about <laughs> how, how film is supposed yeah. to work. And like, this doesn't work like how any other films work. Like the no. Marvel movies are the only movies that can work like this on, on this scale. As far as your question of like where the first act ends, or, you know, like where Act exists. 1 ends. Yeah. Yeah, or does it exist? <laughs> like, it does, but it's not Act 1, it's Issue 1. Like, this is essentially like a six-issue arc, you know? And like, it would, like we start in New York with, well, I guess there's like the prologue uh, on the Asgardian ship, but like the first issue is like the next attack on New York, you know, and the big donut, and then where they show off into space. And then we have the next issue, which is Thor and the Guardians meeting up, and then... I forget where we go from there, but, but yeah. But yeah like, I mean, I mean, Hulk crashing through Doctor Strange's window is, is really the sort of the, it is what you're saying. It's the end of issue one moment, you know, yeah. it's like, mm -hmm. what's going to happen next month? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the things I did really like about this movie that sort of connects to this idea is just how we hop around this universe. And like it, we, we go to so many different places and planets and they each kind of have their own little story, like Peter Dinklage on the dwarf planet which is such a bizarre little like detour in this movie that like the more I think about it the more I like kind of have affection for it just because it is so weird <laughs> but so yes like I totally understand like the feeling that it is just like one big mm -hmm. action sequence but it's not it's just a bunch of issues of a comic that have their own big action sequence sometimes maybe two per and then it all culminates in this big event at the end um, that it's not even the final event of this event, you know, yeah. like, I mean, we are kind of at the midpoint of whatever is, is happening with this story. Which, we, boy, we I mean, despite a, a, like an amazing amount of marketing for this film, I cannot count the number of people that have asked me, so this is the end of the MCU, right? Like, after this, they're stopping making movies. Like, in all seriousness, there are a ton of people out there that didn't realize this was part one of a two-part story. And... <laughs> It reminds me, as I'm so often reminded, that we kind of like live in a little bubble of film people mm -hmm. that know a lot about what's coming up and like sort of what the movements are and what the language is of uh, sort of the cinematic world. There are a lot of people out there to whom like this is not an event. This is a movie that a lot of people are talking about. And so they might go see it. And I really wonder what that experience is like just sort of walking in. Everybody's watching this film. Maybe I will too. Yeah. Oh, I, I've I know. seen I like I can't, two I can't imagine. MCU movies. Sure, I, why not? I, I can't imagine being that person in this situation and not being utterly confounded by it. But I, I was thinking. I mean, it's a cliche at this point to say, but I'll say it because I believe it. I mean, that, that these movies do, on a whole, the way they're designed, the way that they're kind of templated. They do function more like television than film, I think. And this is the type of like mega episode or a series of episodes or, or end of a season or end of a series or something in which you get a whole lot of payoff or a bunch of things that you've spent a lot of time setting up with the previous films. But that's not necessarily the way film works. And so, so to encounter a film like this, you know, even for me in the context of having seen all of the Marvel films, it's, uh, it's jarring. And I think one's reaction to it broadly speaking, might have to do with whether you, you're just simply invested in the MCU and, and these films are not. And, and, and my level of investment is just not. As much as I think the films, by and large, have been pretty good, it's just not as, as strong um, 
is other people and that's and I think it really cost me in this case. I mean, you talk about this isn't what films do or this hasn't how films work, but it is now. I mean, mm-hmm. not yes. only not only have they well, done it. Well, it's how it, these films work. Well, that's just it. So many other people are trying to duplicate this experience and I feel like I have enjoyed the vast majority of the Marvel movies. I did not enjoy the first two Thor movies. Uh, and there've just, there have been hiccups along the way, but for the most part, I've enjoyed this series a lot. I have not enjoyed the way it's warped the cinematic landscape around it. As people look at the amounts of money it's making and think, all we really need to do here is throw out a series of stories and we'll make that kind of money. I wonder if that's going to keep going though, because uh, only other franchise has been able to emulate that is Star Wars, mm-hmm. which was already, you know, that was probably going to do okay anyway. But I think the whole idea of doing sort of the, these expanded, uh, the Rogue One solo Star Wars story uh, is inspired by, you know, putting a movie out every year that's part of a bigger universe. But everything else has fallen apart. I mean, the DC EU is really on shaky ground. I think we'll have DC movies for a while, but this whole idea of like doing it like Marvel, I think it's kind of falling apart. I think the yeah. universal, the universal yeah. monster films are, <laughs> yeah, films yeah are they're, they're looking great. Well, I mean, there was a absurd point where there was going to be, they announced like this extended Robin hood cinematic universe. Oh, right. it, it wasn't even just like another Robin hood film. It was, there was, you know, it's going to be a five film series. And I think King Arthur was going to be that as well. And, and so it's just also, not working out. I think, you know, I had to admire the architecture as much as anything else. They, they, they figured out what they were doing and they did it right. There's also just this feeling that, that any property people can get a hold of, like maybe we can spin it into both a TV show and a movie series. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we don't have the fundamentals of the first film down. I'm thinking of the Dark Tower here. Yeah, us, yeah. But at the same example. time, like they launched that with like, this is going to be like eight films and an ongoing TV show. Well, okay, maybe get the script down for the first movie mm-hmm. before you, you launch into all of that. Well, that's the other thing. Give them a lot of credit for architecture, but also they really did a good job with these characters. There's a reason these movies work is that people connect with these characters. And this movie does not work at all if you're not invested, or apparently even if you are. I mean, I, I know you like some of the Marvel films. Mm-hmm. But. I mean, thank God for Thor Ragnarok because like Thor is such a big part of this. Like, I mean, probably second only to Tony Stark and... and arguably a bigger component of the narrative than Iron Man is. But like if Thor Ragnarok, I I love Thor Ragnarok. And if it hadn't been as good as it was and given me the affection for that character that I have now, I don't know if this movie would have worked the way it does. And it's interesting because it was in production before Thor Ragnarok came out. So, and I, I think I read some items about like, Chris Hemsworth being a little instrumental and sort of urging them to like give Thor a little more comedic juice, you know, here to sort of reflect the character he became in Thor Ragnarok as opposed to the the first two Thor movies. But yeah, this is all my way of saying that I absolutely loved Thor in, in, in this movie. And he was like, you know, the part of it that I connected to the most. I feel like we kind of defined him a lot better in the Avengers movies mm-hmm. than in the Thor movies. And I, I feel like those movies felt like a little bit more of a, a test balloonist. But well, especially the first one, because in the second one, he kind of disappears and has adventures that got cut from the theatrical release. And, mm-hmm. and that was a big mess. But I think one of the things that makes these films work so well is the way the characters play in interaction with each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've just, you've got so much ego and attitude and arrogance coming off of Tony Stark. Like in his films, he has to have something to kind of like push back against him. And those things are almost always like dour and relentless. And like they have a tendency to tamp him down. But he comes up against other heroes in the MCU and he just he has to get like bigger and brighter and louder in comparison. Mm-hmm. People write a lot about the villain problems in MCU movies, and I think that that's very accurate. But at the same time, the void that is the villains kind of has given the heroes a lot more room to take up a lot of space in these movies and be interesting. That said, Thanos does get the closest thing to a full arc in this movie. I am not the first person to say this. This has been observed many times, but like Thanos is sort of the main character of this movie, you know, and it's it's the Thanos origin story in a lot of ways. And the heroes are just sort of 
around to define Thanos and to an extent. Yeah, and as a payoff for some really lackluster Thanos lead-ups, mm-hmm. I, like, I thought this was a pretty surprising movie. And that actually may also have something to do with my enjoyment of it, Scott, is mm-hmm. that it, it surprised me in quite a few ways because mm-hmm. the the Marvel formula is so much about – once again, angry alien gets glowy hoobajoob and wants to blow things <laughs> up. And I, I was expecting that again here. And I was expecting to be pretty bored with it as I've been bored with Thanos up until now. But this time you need six hoobajoobs. <laughs> well, Plus the big hoobajoob yeah. to put them all in. He smushes them all into one big hoobajoob in yeah. the end. So how is that? Okay, I'm going to talk like an idiot here. Okay, there's a, a time stone, correct? This yellow stone. Mm-hmm. How Don't is that, how, ask me which color the time is. It yellow? Is. I am not that big of a dork. Okay. I think it's green. Green. It's, it's the one. Well, is that, it? Is it okay? But in any case, how is that different from the whole circling the Earth thing in terms of the <laughs> narrative effect? I think we'll find out in the next film when they have to undo <laughs> yeah. wiping out half the half the universe. Exactly. But then, how does that end have any resonance? Yeah. If we know well, it's be okay. So here's where, so here's where we get into some like theorizing. But so Doctor Strange was the guardian of the time stone, mm-hmm. and we have that little moments when uh when they're on titan and he's like you know using magic to go over all 14 million possible scenarios for how this ends and there's only one where you know the outcome is good you know Mm -hmm. where they win basically and after that is when dr strange essentially like gives up the time stone to thanos and he has like that one line to tony like we're in the end game now so sort of like the theory is that dr strange has foreseen how this all plays out and this is just sort of a stop over on to the final resolution the the one good okay. resolution yeah, he, he says something like i had no choice which you can read he as, says it was he, the only way it was the only yeah. way yeah, yeah which which you can read as you know i was compelled to do this and had no choice or this is how we win so that's where the time stone i guess probably comes back into play because Doctor Strange knew he had. But I think Scott's larger point though yeah. is that that it's it's trickery. Yeah, uh, I mean <laughs> I mean it's all magic. It's it's all yeah, I, I mean, you, it's you know, Doctor like, Strange thing. It would be a lot more easier but, for me to accept, I guess, if it does work out the way it's been theorized. Well, uh, I mean, keep in mind that if nothing else, assuming that the time stone is the answer, and I would not assume that because Thanos has come up a lot in the comics and he's been defeated by a lot of different heroes in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. A lot we still of different have Captain Marvel on the horizon. We still have Captain Marvel on the horizon, who uh, Kevin Feig has told us is the most powerful Marvel superhero ever to appear in the movies in a walk. Mm. So there's a lot going on in the future that is as yet unknown. That says maybe if it's just somebody picks up the time stone and uses it to rewind time and everybody's fine, there's still the question of how to get there because, first of all, it looked like that the Infinity Gauntlet was fried by killing half the universe. And second of all, Thanos still has it. And all of the heroes couldn't beat him. So how how are half of the heroes going to beat him? Yeah, There's, still, also, a, there's still a how. How is it going to happen? Right. And a lot of people died before that moment in the movie, too. So, you know, it how far back do we rewind? Like Tasha said, it's the how. Were none of you bothered, I guess, by the fact, to my mind anyway, that the film didn't have another gear? I mean, that it was constantly going, that you didn't have a pause for breath or another another. I mean, I think, feel that, I think that final moment after Thanos snaps his finger is the next gear. And it's just, it's not a bigger, louder gear, but it's a completely different yeah, thing. Yeah, but, but you don't, it takes so long to get there in the film. I, 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 just, found, I just found it like, it just shut me down after a while. I just uh, getting that. It happens with me with Michael Bay films as well, I and mean, occasionally with these films, it's like you get pounded with so much visual information that isn't. I don't think all that well articulated. I don't think uh, the Russo brothers are, are particularly good at staging action. I think they're good in, in Captain America: Winter Soldier. I think the action scenes are much cleaner in that, and, and yeah. it's been kind of a step down with everything. But this needs then. to be that. I mean, and, you know, we, you talked about. I think Tasha mentioned on Twitter about how this whole movie was like the airport free for all and civil war but as a whole movie and the thing is like that sequence i really enjoyed because it was such a standout sequence it wasn't part i wasn't seeing a bunch of those sequences all strung together it was all a a lot of build up to this to this moment that was hugely satisfying and i just didn't feel like this film offered that it was a very difficult film for me to just grasp aesthetically you know and i think it's it may be just a generational thing it may just be a lack of interest on my part but i just i there's just the way the film functions it's just it's like filmmaking as like a second language for me i don't get i don't get it i don't get the way this thing is put together it's leaving me behind 
behind uh, because I, I just I, I can't imagine enjoying this film and you all enjoyed it. So uh, I don't know. I'm flummoxed by it. And I, and I feel it's it's tough to feel alienated from the biggest thing going in movies right now. But that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, this film really underlined that in a big way. I guess I don't feel like you're giving the movie credit for the the pauses that it does have. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, this movie was full of downtime moments. You know, the moment where Thor interacts with the Guardians of yeah. the Galaxy and it, it turns into a big one-upsmanship contest. Yeah, I, I enjoy the, those. The moment with uh, with Thanos and Gamora, like on the planet where they meet the Red Skull again and and debate what love is over mm. him, his decision to to kill her. I mean, the the whole business on the giant donut ship where. Uh, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and Tony Stark are trying to figure each other out. (laughs) Yeah, that really old film Aliens. All of the business between Scarlet Witch and Vision. I mean, to me, this movie is full of downtime moments Hmm. where we get to see characters who have never met interact with each other and we find out a little more about their personalities. It didn't seem relentless to me. Not all of it works, though. The Scarlet Witch Vision stuff is is pretty drippy, I thought. Oh, my gosh. I Well, I absolutely agree with you that there's – and the whole – the business that I just cited between Thanos and Gamora, like – I fully believe that he does love her in his way. It's very hard to me to accept as emotionally resonant a form of love that includes animosity for power. <laughs> I, I got some laughs out of the film, though. I mean, the, the film, the film has a nice, surprisingly uh, funny. It's got a lot of good, uh, you know, offhand wit, and, and I should uh, sit on the bus. Yeah, and some of the, and some of the it's, again seeing some of I these characters who had, hadn't spent. There's a spaceship. We're all gonna die. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really liked. I liked having the you know the Guardians of the Galaxy people finally kind of mingle with uh, with others that we'd seen. Yeah, and, and like before. I, I liked the realization that even though we are aware of these characters all in the same universe, they aren't. Mm-hmm. Like I, there, I did feel like kind of a little thrill in the Guardians, like finding out that the Avengers are even a thing. You, <laughs> you know, there's a, a certain satisfaction in seeing all these pieces come together for the characters, not just for us. Mm-hmm. But I want to really quickly go back to your comments about the action because like Well, I agree this isn't like the best action in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I disagree that it's all the same type of action sequence because I think especially in some of the earlier ones, I'm thinking specifically of the first, the donut ship in in New York, the Russos make a point to like separate everyone into groups of two. Like there's lots of one-on-one battles throughout this film not just in that sequence, but there's lots of like smaller pairings of two or three. Also, when they come for uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch, they, you know, everyone gets kind of like paired off into one-on-one, two-on-one type of scenarios. You get like more like a bunch of skirmishes. It's not all giant all-in battle scenes. You get the one giant all-in battle scene in Wakanda. Sure. But everything leading up to that, I think, is a little, is at a slightly lower pitch, just in terms of who's participating, if nothing else. Scott likes the movie now. (laughs) That's a fair point. Uh, that's a fair point for sure. I also just – I feel like so much of this movie is, again, predicated on whether you care about the characters. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about that in terms of caring a, a big thing for, for comics fans, superhero comics fans that I've never gotten is what would happen if these two characters fought each other? And I have never cared about that. What would happen if these two characters talked to each other is another thing. Mm-hmm. But leaving that all aside, I think one of the things this film does that I really enjoyed is it finds a sense of threat for all of these characters and it uses it to find out what they care about. And I found that over and over again, I found it emotionally evocative. And the fact that the film uses so much of that for humor makes it so distinctive from a lot of the X-Men movies and all of the DCU movies, except (laughs) a little bit Wonder Woman. So the fact that these people are people who can joke in the face of, of chaos and death and the end of their universe, I just, I find it really charming. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it aims to please, for sure, and it, it does so, These and uh, pays off the characters. I mean, there are some nice <laughs> moments sort of spackled throughout the film, so uh, we give it credit for that. I'm actually curious, though, to, to get your impression on the ending, since people have been yelling at each other about that <laughs> for a while. I was spoiled on the ending going into it, just kind of by nature of having to figure out coverage for Vox. I, I had to mm-hmm. kind of know what we were getting into uh, with, with the ending before I was able to see it myself. So I went into it like knowing specifically which characters got erased. I, I, I knew everything down, down to a beat more or less. 
it still very much worked for me. Like I obviously didn't have the the shock, although I did have the delight of hearing other people in my <laughs> theater react to it, which was great. But I still found it affecting, I think, on a purely spectacle level, just the way that moment is executed with the sound dropping out. And I think the visual of them dissolving is is very effective. And I, I even like teared up a little at Spider-Man. Like, yeah, that's the, the one. Spider-Man that's, that's death, it, I think, was, yeah. was the definitely the most affecting Mm -hmm. so even though i know that these deaths aren't going to stick i know that there are sequels planned for black panther and and spider-man you know i still could appreciate it in the moment for the effect it had as the culmination of the story that is being told in this film specifically it's well staged too in that you get the fake out about tony stark dying and then he doesn't die and then they sort of eliminate some characters you can see. Yeah, maybe they, they can get rid of them. It's like when we get to like Black Panther and Guardians of the Galaxy, what, what is going on here? You know, yeah. it, it is sort of this escalating dread, uh, although I was spoiled on it going into it too. But you're right. I mean, Holland, Holland's moment is really affecting. I mean, I mean, even though you, you know what? Sorry, Scott, but it's movie magic here because you know <laughs> this can't, this isn't going to stick. But then in the moment, at the same time, it's like they killed Spider Man, you know? It's just really sad. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't yeah, want to yeah. go, Mr. Stark. From what I've read, he improved that line. That wasn't in the uh, script. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the big, the film's biggest cuts. No, it's really good. Is, it, is this the only Marvel film with like a consequential like end credits sequence uh, scene, right? I mean, like that. I mean, argu- arguably, Iron Man in 2008 had an incredibly consequential credit scene when it introduced the Avengers initiative. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure okay. You know. uh, not consequential. But yeah. Okay. But, I'll, uh, I guess we have to concede that, but, uh, <laughs> but I thought like, Hey, you know, I'm kind of uh, glad I stuck around. This is uh, probably good to know uh, this uh, information. Do you know that that is Captain Marvel's insignia though? You had to, you <laughs> yes. had to look it up. <laughs> learned. Uh, there are a few places you can go on the internet to it's find like out a beeper, more right? about like, the connect MCU via films. beeper. Well, the film's in the 90s, so that would actually make sense. That's how the time stone's going to come into play. Oh, my God. (laughs) I found the ending, like, for me, it was a slightly empty experience because of that that feeling. They're comic book deaths. None of them mean anything. And there was a moment where I thought they were going to leave it to people we maybe really didn't want to see go, but that the MCU could actually let go of. And then people started disappearing that I was like, "Eh, nope. None of this is going to stick, not in a meaningful way. So I don't know. For me, listening to other people in the theater respond was was very emotional. And watching the other characters respond was very emotional. Mm. I mean, I really like General Okoye as a character. And seeing her like put her life on the line over and over and over for Black Panther and then just watching him puff out in a Yeah, like, it's, it's interesting because we, we watch Oof. her in that moment. We don't actually see Black Panther. Like, we see like his arm dissolve, I think. But we don't actually like have the moment of him you know, evaporating. We watch her. That's a really good point that it's, I, I think a lot of the effectiveness of that moment is in like how stunned all of the remaining characters are and how just at a loss and empty they, they are in that moment. While we're here, can we just briefly nerd out who's actually going to be dead? Because of the, of like the pre finger snap deaths, I don't think Gamora's gone. No. I don't. Um, I think Loki's definitely gone. Oh, I, think Loki, I don't think so at all. Unless, oh, really? Unless Tom oh, really? Hiddleston has uh, has oh, been. I, I thought Loki was like the. the sure I think thing, Loki will sure, come back maybe thing. in a couple movies. There's so. so yeah. I don't think he's necessarily back in Avengers four, but I mean, assuming Tom Hiddleston is game and or can be lured by dump trucks full of money, <laughs> he is such a fan favorite character. It would be a, a tremendous waste. And he's a god, and he's an illusionist. There are so many ways to fake out uh, on that thing. Like there are so many ways to to take it all back. I, I think Loki's coming back. I think Heimdall's gone because Idris Elba is too big a star for that small part. That is um, probably true. I don't know about Vision. I don't know. You know. Uh, I feel like they're gonna bring him back. I mean, he's a robot. He can be rebuilt. What about Hawkeye? Hawkeye's not in this one. <laughs> Hawkeye's on, on an island. What about, about Ant Man? <laughs> not in this one. Where are, where? He was. He was in every battle. He was just too small to see. And we, <laughs> we never went micro. A- apparently, the events of Ant Man and the Wasp like happened concurrently with mm. whatever is, is happening here. Interesting. I am, so I am intrigued by that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would be Scott. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> I saw. I saw a pretty good tweet that was effectively like Ant Man and the Wasp. Scene one. They both dissolve. End credits. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, there's uh, there's so much more we could talk about. We we've really barely even scratched the surface of hey, did we like this movie? And we could probably talk for twenty hours about individual characters while Scott slowly taps his fingers on the table. Um, but instead, I, I, I just like to hear you all talk about it. I don't, I don't really have a lot to add. <laughs> but instead, we should probably take a break and then come back to talk about the connections between X two and Infinity War. Tell me his name again. Thanos. He's a plague, Tony. He invades planets. He takes what he wants. He wipes out half the population. He sent Loki. The attack on New York. That's him. This is it. What's our timeline? No telling. He has the power in space stones. That already makes him the strongest creature in the whole universe. If he gets his hands on all six stones, Tony. He could destroy life on a scale hitherto undreamt of. Did you seriously just say hitherto undreamt of? Are you seriously leaning on the cauldron of the cosmos? No, no. All right. Well, now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think one of the big things here to talk about with both of these films is how they handle like the individual moment versus the big plot arc. Like both of these films have a lot to balance in terms of trying to give most of the characters some sort of meaningful reason to be on screen and trying to service like the great big plot arc. And we've talked about some of that, but I'm I'm wondering if especially if you've got any particular call outs with either film in terms of maybe a non-main story arc uh, that you think was actually like particularly well or or badly done? I think uh, I want to talk about, especially because we briefly touched on the lameness or emptiness of the love story in X2 in the first half. I I want to talk about Peter Quill and Gamora in Infinity War and the whole thing with her making him promise to kill her and more importantly, the moment where he, uh, Peter Quill basically ruins everything because he's mad at Thanos for killing Gamora and like how just dumb a moment is for that character. I think I think Infinity War is like a bad movie for Peter Quill in a lot of ways in terms of just that was a low moment. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was a low moment for him and, and like the just like I feel like he's kind of caught on the back foot for a lot of this movie just in terms of pitting him against Thor and like nobody listening to him and then having to like kill his girlfriend and not even being able to do that because Thanos has a reality stone and just like all, the, all this stuff. I think like the storyline between him and Gamora is actually like one of the more uh, like fleshed out ones in the film. But it just like does, I think, really weird things for the Peter Quill character. It's the only romance in the MCU that's really come close to working. I mean, they might get there with Peter Parker and a future Spider-Man movie, but it's the only investment I have. And certainly we kind of touched on it before, but Scarlet Witch and Vision, all that kind of happening between movies didn't really help that storyline also transitioning directly out of him basically keeping her under house arrest because he had decided it was for her own good and her fighting back against it and we we transitioned directly from there into we're lovers is it yeah i mean wonder woman kind of gets kind of gets a little bit of romance in there but it's 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 a romance starved genre there have been a lot of interesting pieces written about how the mcu is a pretty sexless universe. Mm-hmm. Like you know, there's sort of a eh, Tony Stark is a playboy and has bedded lots of women, but wants this one woman. Uh, Thor is a playboy and has bedded a lot of women, but wants this one woman like uh, over and over the pattern. I like Tony and Pepper together a little bit. That's kind of works for me. Uh, I, I like her perpetually kind of rolling her eyes at him. Like this isn't what I want. The problem is, of course, she turns into what I've always called a John Grisham whiny wife, <laughs> where her only role in the story is yeah. to say, stop, all this heroism stop being so exciting like come home and be boring and that's that's kind of an uncomfortable tension is this is this kind of an overreact in a way though i mean I, you know there are plenty of opportunities that i guess marvel seem to be turned down over and over again for love interests and things like that to develop simply because they usually don't work and you want the characters to be freed from all that business but then you end up in the situation where you have all of them together and maybe you want a little bit of that and you don't get it. Well, I think the big problem is so many of these films are based in comics that were sort of conceived at aiming at teenage boys. And the, the idea there is that romance is pretty icky. Hmm. So over and over and over, you see these relationships that 
only exist in order to cause angst when they're torn apart or when they're when one of them has to give up when Peter Parker has to give up Mary Jane and have his past completely rewritten by Mysterio or when somebody gets fridged, essentially. So many of the relationships only exist to cause pain. And here we see it happen with Vision and Scarlet Witch. We see it happen with Peter Quill and Gamora. And there's no sense that either of those relationships ever meant anything before the moment where we're told, oh, they're going to be broken apart. Much as in X-Men, we kind of get the feeling that we only really care about the relationship between Gene and Scott, who are both pretty boring characters who we don't see have happy times. We only care about them because Wolverine might become between them or because he's angsty about the fact that he can't. He's the bad boy. What, 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 oh, what's, yeah. what's the line? Like, God, like that, that line do. about girls flirt with the bad boy, but they want to go home to the nice guy. Yeah. Uh, super gross. Yeah. This is an X-Men 2? Yes. Yes. All that stuff is all gold. All <laughs> <laughs> Linda Holmes, I think on Pop Culture Happy Hour, made a really interesting point that the problem with Peter Quill and Gamora is that the movies did not care about Gamora as a character until they needed her to, to destroy, basically. And I thought that was a really interesting idea that she's always gotten underserved as an individual character. She's always just sort of been there for the romance. And now suddenly they need depth out of her and they haven't done the homework. I think that's fair. I think I think the only reason that's not entirely true is that, that Zoe Saldana is such a strong presence in Escamora, is instantly winning and, and like good at reacting without saying anything like oh you're not gonna give me a lot of dialogue well I'll, I'll 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 let you know what i'm feeling anyway you know she's she's quite good i mean i'm not a fan of guardians 2 i did i did not like it very much at all but i do think that film did a little work in terms of fleshing out gamora and nebula kind of in tandem as like a, or fleshing out their relationship which i think became important in infinity war so like i think that gamora has gotten a little development outside of her relationship with peter but you know, obviously, it's taken to a different realm in this movies that, you know, maybe it didn't entirely satisfactorily set up. But I don't know. I think there's definitely stuff in Guardians, too, that sort of lead to what we get with Gamora here. I do enjoy, I mean, the, the films have done a long, slow build with Tony Stark and his, like, growing sense of responsibility and his growing sense of stress over possibly failing that responsibility. I like that this film did not lean too heavily on it or spell it out but by the end of it we basically got him standing in the middle of his worst nightmare mm -hmm. and because they did the groundwork on it we know what that feels like without anybody having to explain it to us i mean i guess the equivalence to that in x2 and the x-men series in in general is wolverine slash logan who just maybe by virtue of being in the movies more than anyone else like has the most sort of developed persona and developed arc and sort of the the most things that his character is concerned about and they tend to dovetail with the bigger villain action uh, such as uh with striker and x2 and sort of the ongoing question of logan's past and where he came from and, and so on which by this point in the X-Men movies has, is very, very well trod, but in X2 is still like sort of a mystery that is unfolding. And even though I think Professor Xavier is like by far the most powerful mutant in this scenario, like Logan slash Wolverine is the most important mutant to the story just by virtue of having the most questions about what his story is that the film can explore. You know, I enjoy the payoff of that arc where he, as I said earlier, decides that his found family is more important than endlessly exploring the past. But I feel like how the movie gets him there is in some ways really weak. And the moment where Magneto's like, oh, sure, Striker, like, doesn't everybody know about your past but you? Because the professor has decided you're not ready for it. There's a weird streak of paternalism in all of that that's just like, you're not ready, so I'm going to let you literally traverse around the world trying to figure this out mm -hmm. without telling you. When I could just say, hey, you're an experiment. This guy did it. He's bad. Like, how hard would that be? Come on. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should we should perhaps move on. One, one other thing that I wanted to bring up that uh, may leave Scott it's standing fine. out in the cold. Nope, I'll just listen is just how much both of these films draw from their respective comics. All of these like tiny little pieces, again, like Nightcrawler being religious or, you know, the entirety of uh, Peter Parker's arc. 
I feel like so much of what we get in both of these movies is meant directly to speak to fans and that you can see the evolution from X2 to the MCU in general of just everything we give the fans, they will notice. So as long as we can make it unobtrusive enough to not be too distracting to more mainstream audiences, like, let's just keep feeding them M&Ms. I mean, I think X2's ending with the shadowy figure rising Mm. below the water, you know, like, that's something that I imagine would mean nothing to people uh, (laughs) who aren't familiar with the comics and what, what happens with Jean Grey and, and Phoenix. I don't actually don't think I knew. I mean, I've actually never read uh, a whole lot of X-Men comics. So I but I just like knew about Dark Phoenix, like just sort of by being around comics people, I guess. But I can't imagine how that moment played to someone who and Jean Grey's death for that matter, how it how it played to someone who didn't have that knowledge. But um, and you're really excited about that third X-Men movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. It didn't work out, though, did it? Even if it had worked out. But really? I, 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 just, no. I, was, I was never invested in the Phoenix saga. Like, were you actually oh, yeah, super excited about it? Well, for sure. It? I, mean, I was looking forward to it, for sure. I, I would like to see that storyline played out. But mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a good setup for it. Had that really been done yet at that point? The sort of marking, like, this is where the next sequel in this franchise is going to go? Like, just a, such a clear road sign pointing forward yeah uh, batman begins ends with the discovery of the joker card if i'm not mistaken but yeah well that was later though so perhaps you're right i mean if you go back to like star wars for instance yes. like it's pretty clear where things are going after empire well I yeah mean, but 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 that's not basing it off of like prior knowledge from a different medium the way sure the, the way x2 is oh, i see what you're thinking yeah, um i can't really think of another example no i can't either but i bet there's someone who's listening to this right now that has like, a brilliant going nuts, example just going nuts just just i gotta send their email now i I think that those people should look for uh, comments at nextpetroshow.net and perhaps uh, send us an email. What about the mass extinction plot? Like, uh, once again, guy with a hoobajoob wants to destroy mass amounts of people. Like, is this a plot that still works at this point? You know, it's been done before. Obviously, we're talking about X2, but it's kind of, it seems kind of novel in, in, in uh, Infinity War because it's like, oh, this is someone with some reasoning behind what they're doing. It's not just domination. He's just, there's too many people, too many problems, you know? <laughs> not much love to go around. <laughs> yeah. The universe is really vast, though, right? There are a lot of reasons. I'm not saying, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's a good plan. <laughs> yeah. I do like the idea that it is, you know, random. I think in terms of like a mass extinction plot, that is sort of a, an interesting wrinkle and that it's not really targeted the way that it is in, in X2, first it mutants and then at human at all or, humans. or you know just genocide generally it, 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 is exactly. very directed <laughs> yeah. It, it, exactly yeah there's usually some sort of ethos behind who is being targeted and like there's an ethos here too but like the randomness is part of it so it's interesting it's you know it's a bad plan thanos but, <laughs> but i see what you were plan. going for <laughs> yeah i mean i think that it helps that they present him as just kind of incontrovertibly insane mm-hmm. like they don't really bother spending much time on justifying it he's the mad titan he's mad <laughs> which you know in age of ultron that did not work at all there were just sort of endless okay i i see step one and then you're on step three, which is kill everybody. What's step two exactly? Where do the under, underpants gnomes come into this? Because the internet is bad. That's what. That's what. <laughs> the internet is bad, so kill everybody. Yep. yep. I mean, I mean, least... I see that sentiment on Twitter every day. So. <laughs> <laughs> Who's more relatable, Ultron or Thanos? <laughs> Who's more relatable, Ultron or the internet? Mm. Twitter. Maybe we should just kill off half of Twitter just randomly. <laughs> I, would, I would prefer a more directed approach. to to killing off Twitter. <laughs> yeah, but you know, to be fair, you've just got to... I, I, I do think that it's really interesting that, he, you know, so many of these comic book movies, I'm thinking of X-Men Apocalypse right now, are like, let's kill all the weak. You know, mm-hmm. let's kill, like, everybody but people who are exactly like me. And it becomes a, a very obvious metaphor. And here it's just like, I don't care. Let's just kill 50% of everybody straight up. I think it does make it more interesting. Yeah. The The question I have is, is Thanos himself part of, of the, the, like, did he also have a 50-50 chance of extinction? I don't think so, yeah. don't think yeah. so either. Because <laughs> that, would, that would be really, really radical if that were the He's case. He's protected by the Infinity Stones yeah. somehow. <laughs> which, which, which stone protects him? Uh, uh, Save all six of them. <laughs> well, all, I think all of them combined probably have a pretty good... Uh, Sorry, the answer was a reality blanket, stone. Blanket. 
Can you name all six stones? I Do think you it was know, the plot stone. Does, does everyone know all six stones but me? Absolutely, as long as you have no follow-up questions whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all different colors, right? They're very pretty stones. Oh, uh, gosh. Is this the nerding out over in incredibly small details of, about comics podcast? Or is this the this is not what film does and I am angry podcast? <laughs> Go ahead, Tasha. What do you what do you what do you have to say? Uh, I have to say that this is the this is not what film does, and I'm angry podcast because I'm so much more interested in that. <laughs> okay, I don't know. I'm glad that people uh, enjoy uh, the film. Uh, if I'm trying to just understand this the the phenomenon, I, there is maybe something to be said for a film that is able to take a lot of shortcuts because so many things have happened before, and you can and there's so much off screen action and things that have happened in, in all of the movies leading up to it. That you can just that can pay off, and and you don't have to be situated within the narrative. You know, I think I'm I, I, again. That's like television as well. I mean, you know, our friend Noel Murray, one of his precepts is like you should be able to watch you know, turn on any TV show at any time during its run and be able to watch it and appreciate it, etc. As this um, distinct unit of television, I always felt like that in the age of serialized storytelling is I, I never really connected quite as much to it as Noel, though I defer to Noel's wisdom on, on television. Uh, but this, this is functioning like that as well in that it isn't holding your hand in any way. It isn't really behaving like most films behave. And it's because you can take all of these shortcuts and uh, treat it more like the, the climax to a, a very complicated world building serialized series. Well, I think that's actually a, a good place to wrap it up. Um, in fact, two of us are going to now evaporate and the <laughs> other two of us, I don't know which two. How random is it? I, it's super random. You should you should stay because you're hosting. I think. I mean, the rest everybody's of us... got the script sitting in front of them, so it'll be fine. Well, two of us will be fine. We'll we'll see how this goes. <laughs> On the other hand, we're in Genevieve's apartment. There are other people in this house. Maybe we'll all make it. <laughs> Uh, in the meantime, X2 is available on Blu-ray, DVD, and on various streaming services. And you can expect Infinity War to be in theaters until probably somewhere around Christmas, the way it's currently going. <laughs> At least until Ant-Man and the Wasp and or Captain Marvel come out. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good to you lately? So earlier this year, the film-centric corners of the internet briefly came down with a severe case of Paddington fever, uh, <laughs> with everyone seeming to lose their collective mind over Paddington 2, and by extension, Paddington, it's 2015 for Bear. Oh, eh? yes. I did that for you, Scott. That was great. I love it. <laughs> there were two bears maximum. So at the time, I had seen Paddington and liked it well enough, but I was sadly unable to convince anyone to go see Paddington 2 with me in the theater, so I kind of missed out on the first round of Paddington Mania. But now, Paddington 2 is officially available for digital rental, so I was recently able to check it out for myself, and I'm here to report that the reports of Paddington 2's greatness have not been exaggerated. <laughs> the sequel takes all the things that made the first film feel so refreshing among children's films and dials them up a few more notches. Uh, the unfailingly polite Paddington Bear, voiced by Ben Wishaw, is still good-natured and curious in equal measure, uh, leading to some big, lively comedic set pieces. Uh, the film's storybook-centric production and animation design are both more adventurous and still quite lovely, particularly in some sequences that emulate the look of a diorama or pop-up book. Uh, and the role of the cartoonishly posh but evil villain has been filled by Hugh Grant, who has a legitimate claim to one of the year's best performances <laughs> with this movie, I'd say. Um, there's also a supporting term from Brendan Gleeson that's uh, quite wonderful, I'd say. And again, like the first Paddington, this film uses Paddington's status as an immigrant to weave in some lightly metaphorical ideas about the value of multicultural communities and the dangers of prejudice. Uh, but it keeps it all couched in this friendly little clockwork narrative that keeps it from ever feeling too heavy-handed or moralizing. Like its namesake character, this film is quietly and unobtrusively extraordinary and all but impossible to describe without using the word delightful. So I won't even try. It really is quite delightful. Uh, if you've seen it, you probably don't need my recommendation to see it again. But if you haven't seen Paddington 2, it's available for digital rental and purchase now. 
and I recommend it. Oh yeah, so second, second so who, who, who's who's the Paddington naysayer at this table? I'm looking over at Tasha. Oh. Ooh, me, me. Uh, um, I'm only a naysayer in that, uh, like, I was I was sold it on. This is the greatest film of all time. Like David there, like, uh, was was literally just like it's going to sweep all the Oscars. Wow. Like, like big over the top hyperbole, which is yeah. obviously tongue in cheek. Mm. I got some of that from you too, though. Scott. No, I think it's legitimately great. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not. I'm, there's a difference between legitimately great. And it's going to win all of the no, awards. no. That's, that's so that's I, I understood that I was getting hyperbole, mm-hmm. but you know, I I went to see it and I found it like I did. I deliberately skipped the first one because I was like, oh, oh children's picture book uh, adapted to full length movie CGI uh, version of the character running around. It's going to be dreadful and on your recommendation i rented it watched it and then went straight to the theater and watched paddington 2 so back-to-back double feature (laughs) okay i thought they were charming i thought they were surprising i was not over the moon for them basically not even hugh grant didn't hugh wasn't hugh grant the difference maker in this thing (laughs) hugh grant was pretty delightful that moment when he's up in his attic talking to his costumes is it's really quite winning yeah I mean, you really Exit get to see- pursued by an actor. It's oh, so good. It's so good. You get to see him just go places as an actor you've never seen Hugh Grant. I, I like that he doesn't even work that much anymore. So it's kind of he just works when he wants to. And to make a total fool of himself in Paddington Two is is one of the things that motivated him to get off the couch. I I, I appreciate that about him. Well, and, and I, I just before. liked how playful uh, Paddington Two is with a lot of its visuals. Like the, it, it almost feels like Wes Andersonian in, oh, in, yeah. in a lot of parts, but not quite as airless as Anderson can be sometimes. But yeah, just I and there's lots of little like little animation sidebars that are neat. And I just I feel like the movie is just sort of having a lot of fun with itself without being especially like self conscious or performative about it. For me, I think it was just like the first one. The family is uncomfortable with him. They don't necessarily want him there. And there's like this sort of tension of like, will this bear find a home? Will he find happiness? Like, is there a place for him in the world? And in the second one, like they're all on board. They're all kind of they've gone from being very distinctive characters, uh, Infinity War style to all kind of being the same character. And it's really pretty much just Paddington and, and Hugh Grant. And I, I felt it lost a little something with that. Oh, see, I actually, I, have, I like the fam, I like the Browns better in the second one, but we don't need to go too deep into Paddington too. Although it, <laughs> it, it did, it did mean I, I said this when Paddington two came out. Like it, it's too bad that we already did Babe because as a pairing on the podcast because like Babe feels like a corollary to the Paddington movies. Uh, sure. And actually, I guess Babe. We could have done oh, it with, with, the with Pig in the City. That would have been great, yeah. Uh, that, that actually may have been an even better pairing, mm-hmm. but alas. Alas. Yeah. Uh, make it a double feature for yourself. Scott, what's your recommendation? Uh, I wanted to recommend a film for uh, you Stanley Kubrick fans out there called Film Worker. Um, I just did a piece for uh, Rolling Stone on the movie. It's documented by Tony Ziera, and it's about this uh, fellow named Leon Vitale, who started as an actor. He was an actor in Barry Lyndon. He had just like a line or a very small part. But Kubrick responded to him so much that he just kept expanding the role, etc. And then uh, and then l- later on, he became Kubrick's right-hand man and was with him through every production after that. And his role evolved i mean he became you know he was a casting director he's a dialogue coach he was a foley guy he did color timing he did promotional art you know he 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 worked really closely with arlie ermy and with danny lloyd and considers himself still the caretaker of kubrick's work you know after he he died you know so Matthew Modine compared him to Igor and uh, to Kubrick's uh, Dr. Frankenstein. I think that's a pretty good comparison. I mean, somebody who's completely devoted to Kubrick in a way that's self-effacing and, 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 and mysterious in a way. I mean, he's he's he acquired all of this skill and he he worked himself almost to death. I mean, very you know he worked you know, 14, 16 hour days carrying out whatever thing that Kubrick wanted him to do. I mean, and it could get small. It could be like making sure the Turkish subtitles are right or making sure the promotional art in some faraway territory is reflective of what he wants. I mean, it's that detail oriented. So, so, you know, as a documentary, 
it could be more Kubrickian or it could be more pleasing stylistically. It's a pretty straightforward, almost a uh, almost like a video supplement you would see on a on a, on a disc. But it's still he's an absolutely fascinating guy, uh, Leo Vitale. I got to talk to him for like fifty minutes on the phone about all things Kubrick, and it was just a really great conversation. And and um, and, and I think broadly speaking, film worker is about enforcing an appreciation for below the line people you know the un- unsung hero types and he is certainly an accomplished below the line guy who deserves uh, his time in the spotlight so film worker where can people see it well people can see it um it's going to be at the metrograph in new york starting may 11th and then it, in it's in los angeles on may 18th and it is is rolling out from there if you live in chicago it's going to be here at the at music box at june first uh, which i assume will probably time up with the 2001 yeah they're doing the 2001 unrestored 70 millimeter mm-hmm. uh, some other Kubrick which he was involved too. in by the way leon leo vitale okay. was involved in that in the 4k transfer and i asked him about what his future plans are and he's like well there's always other kubrick films that are going to yeah. be transferred to 4k and transferred to blu-ray and he's going to be involved in making sure that it, it looks as close to the, the way it's, uh, these films should look as, as kubrick would have wanted so it's pretty remarkable. Film worker. Tasha. Well, I'm going to super cheat here because I'm, I'm coming off of back-to-back film festivals and like my film watching for the last several weeks has mostly been things that people are not going to be able to see for a while. Um, so I'm going to call up one of those. I actually just re-watched it at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Um, I originally saw it at South by Southwest, I want to say. Honestly, it all blurs at this point. But it's a film called Fast Color, and I'm bringing it up even though it has not been picked up yet, and you cannot see it yet. (laughs) Uh, It is directed by Julia Hart and uh, written by Julia Hart and Jordan Horowitz. You may remember Jordan Horowitz from such things as producing La La Land and being the guy at the Oscars who had to (laughs) look at the uh, look at look around him and say, "Oh, we didn't. We're up here, but we didn't actually win." The movie stars uh, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, uh, who you may remember from Belle, I believe an old uh, Genevieve Kosky mm-hmm. pick for yeah. this podcast. And uh, she was in Wrinkle in Time. She was in uh, the San Junipero episode of uh, Black Mirror. She's been in a lot of things with just very interesting roles. Oh, and she was in Beyond the Lights, one of my favorite movies ever. One of the best romances, of modern romances, I'd say ever. Which I absolutely should have brought up because that is a terrific film. And I think, like, I'd already seen Bell in theaters, but I think that was the film that kind of for both of us yeah. was, was like, we need to watch everything this woman does. Exactly. She stars as a woman who has effectively a superpower uh, that she cannot control. And I don't want to give too much away because you may not be able to see this for a while, but the whole film, it's a small, independent superhero story, effectively. There's a moment in the film where somebody says, we're not superheroes. And then the film kind of unfolds in a way that makes that not entirely true. But people have been talking about this film like it's an origin story for the X-Men's Storm for various reasons. One being that it's about a woman of color with uh, significant powers over uh, basically uh, nature. And another is just there's a tenderness to both her character and to the story that seems like it's something that comes out of Storm's backstory, which we've never really gotten in a meaningful way in X-Men films. The cast in this, it's small, but it's just, it's some of my favorite people. David Strathairn is in it. Uh, Lauren Toussaint is in it. And it's a family story. It's a personal, like, evocative little story that that happens to be both a superhero story and just kind of a, a creation story, origin story for an entirely unique little world. I mostly bring this up, given that people can't see it yet, because I think there's going to be news about it pretty soon. And it might be kind of exciting news, at least if people have at least heard of it, if it's on their radar. Otherwise, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, okay, another another one of those. Sure. Uh, fast color. I just I want people to know it's out there. So when they find out what's happening with it next, they'll be as excited as I am about it. Intriguing. Keith, what about you? Uh, I've just got kind of a random pick. I was home alone on a Saturday night looking for a horror movie, scanning through Netflix. And I remembered I enjoyed the film. Well, enjoy is not quite right, but I, I, I like the film Gerald's Game. And I recognized the director, Mike Flanagan. I'd seen his, his film Oculus, which I wasn't over the moon for, but I thought it was promising. But I'd heard good things about the films he made in the interim. And this is a Bloomhouse production called Hush that kind of 
follow the route that a lot of horror movies follow now. It premiered at a film festival and was on Netflix a few weeks later. Um, so it may be a little under the radar, but it's a very, it's very clever and well executed. And I'm just going to give you the premise. And it's 81 minutes long. You can figure out the rest for yourself when you watch it. But um, Kate Siegel, who is uh, Mike, director Mike Flanagan's wife, who co-wrote the film with him, plays a deaf author uh, living in sort of somewhat remote house in the country. And she is being menaced by a man who doesn't know that she's deaf. And it's a question of how can she stave off a home invasion, keep alive, you know, kind of use what she can use, what she can do against him. It's, it's, very, it's really well done up to a point. I think the end gets a little, a little much at, at the end, but uh, it's a very satisfying a horror film, uh, technically very well done. And Siegel's really good in the lead role. And uh, John Gallagher Jr. Uh, as the bad guy is also quite good and quite scary. Uh, so I would uh, recommend that. It's, it's scanning through Netflix. Remember the movie Hush. Yeah. Also, the name, just remember it's also the name of the best Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out May 29th and 31st. Genevieve, what are we discussing? Deadpool 2 arrives in theaters knowing that it's a superhero movie, knowing that it's a sequel, knowing that it's part and apart from the Marvel line, and knowing that you'll appreciate its knowingness. That same irreverent and referential spirit informs Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Joe Dante's anarchic sequel to his 1984 Yuletide hit Gremlins. Given carte blanche from Warner Brothers to do whatever he wanted, Dante decided to make a delirious pop entertainment that combines the slapstick of a Looney Tunes cartoon with a commercial pop of a Frank Tashlin comedy. His first order of business? Torturing the Mogwais that everyone found so adorable in the first one. On the next episodes of The Next Picture Show, we'll look at how Deadpool 2 and Gremlins 2 comment on the studio sequel and use self-reflexivity to their advantage. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of X2, Infinity War, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Uh, you can find my work at the culture section at Vox.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, you can find me at, on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times, Washington Post. I mean, this film worker thing's on uh, Rolling Stone. You know, I'm still re- recapping <laughs> uh, the Americans for vultures. So some stuff is there. So uh, a lot of different little p- places. Um, so uh, what about you, Keith? I'm just a young freelancer trying to find my way into the business. Uh, <laughs> I, I, by the time this comes out, I might have some clips in, in such a book, publications as The Verge and Vulture, lining up a couple of other things. But uh, yeah, still figuring all this out. Where can they find you on Twitter? Oh, on Twitter, you can find me at KFIP3000. And where can they find your work, newly available? Oh, yeah. I started, I, I, I claimed the URL, KeithPhipps.com, and just collecting uh, my contact information and clips are on there. If anyone's curious, it should be easy to remember. Yeah. As the editor dealing with uh, Keith's upcoming verge piece on what the marvel cinematic universe would look like if they didn't take back the end of infinity war i am super super excited and proud to be featuring his stuff on the verge you can find me at wait what what was it again oh yeah theverge.com where i'm the film and tv editor you can find me on twitter at tasha robinson you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at NextPitcherPod, and via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPitcherShow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts, more prominence, and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us emotionally, and it's like you're teaming up with us in the fight against Thanos. <laughs> Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space in her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. So then one day all the heroes were assembled To fight a villain who packed much more than a punch And his crew was labeled the Avengers That's the way we all became the Marvel Bunch the Marvel Bunch, the Marvel Bunch, that's the way we became the Marvel Bunch. Uh, hello, brother. Shut up.